0: Pop Culture Affidavit presents 80 Years of DC Comics, Part 10, Star Trek. Welcome to part 10 of my special podcast mini-series, 80 Years of DC Comics, which is brought to you by Pop Culture Affidavid and the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. The purpose of this series is to highlight the various genres that DC has published since 1935, as well as stories that don't always end up in top 10 lists. With this episode, I'm continuing my look at licensed properties, but instead of working my way through more of DC's licensed property publishing history, I'm going to focus on only one book, and that is the book that DC was best known for in the 1980s and 1990s when it comes to those licensed properties, Star Trek. Now, if you want a really good look at Star Trek in comics, take a listen to another great Two True freak show, and that is Star Trek Monthly Monday. If I recall correctly, Scott and Chris have covered a number of Star Trek comics. I also believe that Andy and Michael Leyland covered some Trek comics on a Hey Kids comic episode or two as well. But I didn't want to talk about licensed properties that DC put out and not include Star Trek. At the same time, I didn't want to shoehorn it into the last episode. I think that Trek's got too much of a history at DC to do that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a brief look at the history of Star Trek comics at DC, and I'll do a full synopsis and review of one issue. And I'll do that after this. Mr. Scott, shall we give the Enterprise a proper shakedown? I would say it's time for that, sir. I... Before this drama unfolds, we give welcome to the ones named Kirk and Spock. You! What planet is this? Which one of you is the captain we violate the treaty, Captain. Sir, someone is stealing the Enterprise. What are you stretching at? <laughs> Humans make illogical decisions. Distract sequence completed and engaged. Oh, Mrs. Spock. I'm talking to Mrs. Fox you understand! Stopwind, do you read? This is the Enterprise. We are under attack. Fire, Mr. Scott. Join Scott Gardner and Chris Honeywell, the Two True Freaks, every month for a new episode of Star Trek Monthly Monday. Every month you will get a classic episode of Star Trek The Original Series, a Star Trek comic, and who knows what else. Episodes of Star Trek Monthly Monday can be found for free at twotruefreaks.com. They can also be downloaded for free from iTunes. Star Trek comics have been published... Really since 1967, with Gold Key having the license until 1979 and then Marvel publishing a series that started with an adaptation of the motion picture and ran for 18 issues, being cancelled in late 1981. DC picked up the license in 1984 and would more or less consistently publish comics about the Enterprise's crew for 12 years, publishing two series, the first running for 56 issues until July 1988, and the second debuting in October 1989 and running for 80 issues, ending in December 1995. Along the way, there were specials, original graphic novels, miniseries, and a series based on Star Trek The Next Generation, as well as a two-part Who's Who in Star Trek which Rob and Shag, I believe, will eventually get around to on the Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe over at the Iron Water podcast. DC has published Star Trek books here and there since the 1990s, but for the most part, this was its heyday, and the series was a very good fit for DC. I didn't put a ton of thought into which comic I picked for this episode. My LCS is a ton of old Trek comics in the 50 cent bins, so I grabbed a couple that look good, and the one I chose is a real treat. It's Star Trek number 33 from December 1986, a first series issue that hit newsstands on September 11th, 1986. The cover is by Jerry Bingham and shows original series Kirk Spock and McCoy in Uhura in the foreground. the enterprise behind them while in the background we have movie era kirk and spock and the excelsior it's a 38 pager so it's a dollar 25 instead of 75 cents and there's a banner labeled special running across the top our cover copy says celebrating 20 years of voyages and there are details inside for a 20th anniversary contest our story is titled vicious circle and our creative team is as follows len ween writer thomas sutton pencils ricardo Villagran. Inc.'s Augustine Moss Letters: Robert Greenberger, editor, with thanks to Beth Meacham for suggesting the idea. Star Trek, of course, was created by Gene Roddenberry. Captain's Log, Stardate three thirty-one fourteen point one. Having been hurled back into the late 1960s as a result of an accidental encounter with the Black Star, the Enterprise is attempting to return to its proper time via use of the slingshot effect. Employing the gravitational field of the sun itself to create a sufficient whiplash to propel us into another time warp and hopefully home. At least that's the theory. And with that, we see the Enterprise as it looked as, as it looked in the TV series fly through space and time on the bridge. Spock tells Captain Kirk that they have reached their century. Kirk orders Scotty to stop the ship, and despite some bumpiness, the ship comes out of its time warp safely. Uhura tries to help Starfleet, but she can't get them on any frequency. Kirk's alarmed. Captain's Log, Stardate 8906.3. Having intercepted a distress signal on an obsolete subspace communication channel, the Excelsior is en route to the source of the message at all possible speed, because as impossible it may seem, the signal appears to have been transmitted from the USS Enterprise. The USS Excelsior has picked up a signal from the Enterprise, which is odd because this was the crew of the Enterprise, a ship that was destroyed on the Genesis planet. Not only that, the voice you heard is hearing on the communicator is her own. Savick checks the equipment and says nothing is malfunctioning. Kirk has Chekhov scanned the vessel and then put it on the screen, and they are aghast at seeing a ship that they all served on 20 years ago. Captain's Log, Stardate 8906.4. Coming out of Transwarp Drive, the Excelsior has found itself confronted by a ship that is either a dream come true or the stuff of nightmares. Despite all logic, despite the fact that I saw it destroyed by my own hand, I find myself staring at the USS Enterprise, and I wonder if I am losing my mind. The crew of the Enterprise stirs up its shields and is then hailed by the Excelsior and are shocked to see Admiral Kirk. Dr. McCoy thinks it's a joke, but Spock reveals it's not. They overshot their mark and have arrived exactly twenty years into the future. On board the Excelsior, Savik concludes that this is not a mirror universe stunt, while Bones rants and asks why they don't all have why they don't all remember this. Admiral Kirk invites Captain Kirk aboard the Excelsior, and as the crew of the Enterprise converses about overshooting their return from the nineteen sixties, Kirk remembers the trip that but Bones doesn't remember anything. The Enterprise crew beams aboard, and as weird as it is, greetings are exchanged, and decorum is followed. A meeting is interrupted by some tremors, and for a split second, Captain Kirk thinks it's a trap. Admiral Kirk reassures him it isn't. They head to the bridge, and on the view screen can see some sort of wormhole opening in space. Staff concludes it's a coronal warp caused by the arrival of the Enterprise in their time, and this could mean the end of the universe. The solution? Return the Enterprise to its proper time. Spock says that he will require the instruments on the Enterprise. So it's off to the Enterprise, where the young crew has similar reactions, and as the meetings commence, there are more tremors. Time is running out. Kirk has a moment of regret over destroying his former ship, and Bones reassures him that he did what he had to do and the past of the past. This reminds the Admiral that it's time to save the future. The calculations don't look good. They can't accurately map out another slingshot around the sun. Then another vessel appears, enters the picture, the Surik, which is captained by Spock. Spock comes aboard and tells the crew that they are correct. They have a terrible predicament. But there is something else. They have to return to the planet of the Guardian of Forever, which is the planet where Kirk lost the only woman he ever truly loved. The planet can serve as a gateway to the past. They arrive at the planet. It's tearing itself apart. Spock beams down to the surface and asks the Guardian of Forever to show him the events of the last 20 years. He calculates the moment when the Enterprise needs to re-enter from the time stream and sends the calculations to the other Spock. Kirk gets Excelsior out of there and the Enterprise begins its trip. Captain's log, started, inapplicable. We have shut down the Enterprise's engines, preparing to restart them abruptly, and thus trigger the antimatter time effect. The ship shudders, then moans, but then, like the courageous lady she is, the Enterprise begins to move, slowly at first, then faster. Our chronometers running backward rolling backward, our today's becoming our yesterdays, faster, ever faster, bucking the ripples of time displacement as we race directly toward the planet of the Guardian forever, and what may well be our final rendezvous with destiny. We get a replay of the very beginning of the issue, when you, and when you hurry hell, Starfleet, Starfleet responds. It seems that the Enterprise is home. Twenty years later, there's Excelsior Distries, a distressed call from the Surak, and they head out there. Overall, this was a fun story. Uh, one of those great gimmick pieces, like a Yesterday's Enterprise that is like a great what-if piece. We all get moments I think we would expect and it it felt I felt pretty satisfied afterwards. Uh, The art overall is okay. Tom Shutton does a decent job of getting everybody's likeness right. But I'm I'm going to go with specific pages actually. Go from page to page or or through specific pages for the bulk of my review. Um, So I'm going to start with with, with the cover, which I, I really, really like. Um, one of the... Jerry Bingham has done stuff with Raja Ghul and, and Batman before, and uh, it's a really, really great cover, although Kirk and Yahura look a little bit off-model. Spock looks pretty much like Spock, but for the most part, um, it's it's eye-catching enough uh, and, and, and looks good enough. Uh, Jerome... Jerome K. Moore would do a number of Trek covers uh, down the line that were just stunning in how good they were. Uh, Skipping to page four, this is Savic on the bottom um, bottom right hand panel, and she she looks off. She looks off during this most of this this issue, and uh, this takes place between three and four. And and what's weird to me is that she in. Three shoes played by Robin Curtis and then two shoes played by Kirstie Alley and I can't tell whose likeness they had the rights to or what they were going for or if Sutton was trying to do was trying to do Kirstie Alley. Um, it, it, she definitely has the look throughout the issue of a of a Hollywood ingenue in in, in some way that um, that would be that we'd be playing her, but it, it looks it's off putting, especially since they color her with black hair and not brown hair. And this is it's me nitpicking. But uh but I, I think out of out of all the characters she probably could have been drawn a little bit a little bit better. Um pages six through seven is the double page splash It's the title page as well where the Enterprise emerges from time the, the time warp to the Excelsior and the way this is set up it looks like the Enterprise is going to crash into the Excelsior even though that's not exactly what is going to happen and there's never any danger of it Um, and based on what I can tell this places us firmly between Star Trek's three and four and I've always gotten from the very few issues I've read from this era I've always gotten the impression that they could only do so much or or they they had taken the crew out and given them the Excelsior and then when they figured out that they had to work the continuity of 4 in they had to get them back to Vulcan maybe i'm i'm not entirely sure because 3 and 4 um the beginning of i think one of Kirk's logs at the beginning of of Star Trek 4 suggests that they were essentially on Vulcan for months after the end of Star Trek Three, So um, the movie continuity and the comic book continuity don't necessarily jive, but movies don't have the pressure of publishing a story every month to satisfy that sort of space between. So I completely get it. Page 8. Uh, Sutton draws a very good young Kirk and a pretty decent old Kirk. He does. I will give him this. He he gets the young hair, young Kirk hair down really, really well, and the uh, the Shatner toupee is just in in full ness in this issue. He really knows how to draw that rug. Page fourteen. You have this conversation um between Spock and Savik, where Savik lies to Spock uh about his his death. And this is the younger Spock. So she she come he comes on to the Enterprise and she says live long he comes on to the Excelsior and he says, Live long and prosper, Spock of Vulcan. I'm pleased to see you again. Um he says, "Forgive me, but I do not." He says, "Savic." He says, "Lieutenant." She says, "Lieutenant, Savic." Now, sir, science officer aboard the Excelsior, um, and then he asks, "Like, where's my other counterpart?" And she says, "You uh, command the science vessel surak now, Spock." And uh, he says, "That explains it." Then I pre- thought perhaps my absence had more ominous overtones, and it's you forget that that. I think Savic's origin was that she was half Romulan, and and you, you forget, but um, she really looks like Kim Cattrall in a couple of these panels, uh, which is kind of funny considering Cattrall would be in Star Trek VI. But uh, Savic lies to him because she she had she had a little bit of you know, a little bit of emotion that she didn't necessarily want to let out. Um, you could tell she was always in two, she, Christy Alley plays her with this eagerness, uh, even though she's very, very logical and things like that. And and uh, here it's for it's her, it's a very logical thing to not tell Spock that he's going to die. And this will come up later. Page 17, Kirk meets Chekhov for the First, Enterprise Kirk meets Excelsior Chekhov for the first time. It's kind of a clever nod to the fact that obviously this fit into the show's continuity. Prior to um, Walter Koenig coming on in the cast, I'm not going to go and look up the episode because I don't have... I, I'm in the middle of recording this, so you guys can just kind of fill in those blanks for me. But it's a clever little thing meaning that, you know, this was around the time the Enterprise had kind of that rotating helmsman uh, navigator thing going on and before they finally settled on the team of Sulu and Chekhov. Let me flip ahead to page 22, where Admiral Kirk comes aboard the Excelsior, and they have one of those patented... Uh, tre- trek bridge tilts where everybody falls, and Janice Rand falls on top of him. And Janice Rand, of course, is wearing what, her very very short red skirt, and she says, "Excuse me, Admiral." The uh, the sudden convulsion threw me off balance. He says, "No apologies necessary, Nolan Rand. To be honest, Janice, I rather enjoyed it. Oh, reminded me of old times." And she says, if you'll excuse me, Captain Admiral, I better return to my station. It's like, ooh, he's flirting with her. And it's very just, it's Kirk. It's it's very classic Kirk. Just, just being a total flirt. And there are a lot of like cute little meetings like this. There's some very, really good ones as well. Um, there's a conversation between both you horrors on page 23 where young uhura says you know i'm not married and i have no children no legacy to leave and she says not the one we'd hope to leave but we've helped to open the universe to all mankind that's more than legacy enough for any woman um and there are really really nice moments moments there you know there are conversations and you know there are cute meetings between the various members but then there are then there are moments like that and there's Jim standing on the bridge of his old ship and and once again regretting destroying the enterprise and uh, on the Genesis planet and he's like, you know, you did what you had to do. Bones says you saved a lot of lives in the process and it's very much echoes what he says at the end of 3 where he says, you know, you you gave us a chance. And then Kirk's like, you know what? Yeah, we got a universe to save. Let's get down to business. The Spock thing I mentioned earlier uh is when he when he got on the when he got on the ship, uh which I'm assuming was just a way to kind of get him into the the comic book with the Surak responding to the stress signal because I guess Spock was just elsewhere at this point. he gets on there he ha he has he says he has a plan and of a kind and and young Spock says something overlooked he says no, it's merely something of which you were as of, as yet unaware. And then, you know, they, he gives them a plan for it. And there are hints throughout, um, especially when he's talking to the older Admiral Kirk about Edith Keeler. And I like that, because The City on the Edge of Forever is one of those most remembered, most highly regarded Star Trek episodes that, at this point, Kirk had not... The young Kirk from the Enterprise had not experienced yet. He hasn't had that pain yet. And uh, the older Kirk is just very upset about it and doesn't want to go there. And it's just... Kirk's like is there something we should know about this planet something dangerous and he says uh, older Kirk says I'm sorry I'm truly sorry but this is one thing you just have to learn for yourself and you know I mean like how do you prepare somebody for that especially somebody who is is definitely definitely human as opposed to um, and one of my favorite exchanges in the whole book on page 31 and 32 where Spock talks to Spock and uh, Kirk says to Spock Spock's about to Go down to the landing party. Land on the planet. Kirk says, be careful, I wouldn't want you to lose a second time. And young Spock says, a second time. Old Spock says, I believe the Admiral is referring to my recent untimely depth. Uh, Scotty kind of fills him in. And young Spock says, and why did you not tell me this, Savik? And she says, I don't know how. I did not wish to upset you. And Spock says, upset me. How? It appears I should I sacrifice my life to save the lives of hundreds of others. And what could be more logical? The needs of the many must never outweigh the needs of the few or the one. And Savick says, forgive me Spock for underestimating me. Um, and he says, unnecessary Savick needs for another will never be forgiven. Will, will... Needs for another need never be forgiven. It kind of reminds me a little bit of when Supergirl shows up with the Legion of Superheroes and whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow and Superman can't tell her why she's not there, and he kind of goes along with, like, you know, she's like, oh, I must be off somewhere, and he's like, yeah, you are, even though she's dead in that era, and and he would admonish his Brainiac 5 for doing that, except here, it's kind of played for a little bit of a laugh, but, like, totally a, this is the response Spock would give, this sort of logical response that even if he, um, even if he remembered this after this incident, he probably would let it play out as it had to, because that's the logical thing to do. So I really did appreciate that moment. Finally, um the last thing I wanted to look at was um the idea that this is just kind of a story that you know, everybody kind of gets their memory wiped at the end and then we return to continuity, which makes it kind of a special, and I could see how they would banner that, because that way you could have this, you could have this nice little piece. And a lot of other people would buy it, especially at the height of the 20th anniversary celebration. And if they wanted to buy the next issue, they could. Hopefully, you would get them to buy the next issue, especially with the kind of a little bit of a um, cliffhanger that says, you know, next issue, beginning a three-part adventure that will change the lives of Kirk, Spock, and the Excelsior crew forever, and may lead to intergalactic war, Join us for the doomsday bug, until then, live long and prosper. And it... it i i like the fact that this didn't stay in continuity and it's just kind of that yesterday's enterprise type of thing where um it wasn't supposed to, it was just supposed to be this neat little time travel story that never really mattered in the grand scheme of things and just kind of a little gimmick to get two different crews of the enterprise together it's always i don't know it's it might be kind of a little bit of a cheap trick, but but it was a cheap trick that I enjoyed. Um, I'm going to take a little bit of the, uh, look at a little bit of the uh, the letter letter column here. It's called Hailing Frequencies Open, and there's a there's a pink box before they get the letter. It says, It's anniversary time. On September 6, 1966, millions of Americans were exposed to Star Trek for the first time. While only diehard fans will remember the specific episode's man trap, everyone remembers that it was special, it was different, and best of all, it was intelligent. Over the last 20 years, Those qualities have grown to encompass 79 live-action television episodes, 22 animated episodes, 4 feature films, numerous record albums, dozens of books, a comic strip, and over 100 comic books. Names and phrases have become a part of the modern mythology, and it was the first time a vocal, caring and active fandom, saved a television series from cancellation twice. These same fans organized conventions and urged Hollywood to produce more Star Trek that call was heard and answered slowly at first, but with more momentum with each project. We're on something like our third generation of fans, and there is no end in sight for this phenomena. The parties have all been held over the country, but none were more impressive than the Anaheim convention run by our buddies from Starlog in late June. It got coverage on Entertainment Tonight and even the CBS Evening News. And now it's, it is our turn. This issue was labored over for months by me and Len Ween. And then Tom Sutton spent a great deal of time on the art. We think this issue is a winner and we hope you agree. We have tried to remain true to the concept of Star Trek and will will continue to do so in the future. With a deep bow of respect and gratitude, we dedicate this issue of the comic to creator Gene Roddenberry and the cast and crew of Star Trek. Thank you for 20 years of great memories. Some various, various... um, letters about issues 20 and 29 and then um coming attractions that are discussed in the surac uh although meantime our dc universe is a free interesting goodies if you and this uh coming out this month was issue two of legends the premiere of blue beetle and the green lantern Corps, as well as the New uh, legion of superheroes i'm going to take a quick look at the ads as well before i head out um Some of these I've seen in issues of the NOM. The packs of fun for everyone. This is a classic M&M ad that was running around this time. Uh, uh, There's the bonkers. Everyone's bonked out by new chewy chocolate bonkers. It's like rich chocolate outside, dark fudge inside. I can't imagine that was any good. There is an advertisement for Legends crossovers. uh, The first issue of the Cosmic Boy miniseries, Green Lantern Corps number 207, which shows Guy Gardner basically throwing every Green Lantern off of him, and then Legends Issue 2, which are on sale in September. There's the la- There's a laser tag ad. By the summer of 86, the game of tag had changed forever. There's a laser tag siren. You can't deny it this time. It's your sixth hit, and you're out. The star sensor never lies. RATS! Betrayed by a computer scanned infrared beam and oscillating LED readout. Now let's see how he does against some real competition. <sighs> the Laser Tag Game Kit comes from once st- with one Starlight, one Star Sensor, and one Star Belt. Look for Laser Tag Saturday mornings this fall on NBC. There's a, another house ad for Cosmic Boy. From the pages of Legends comes the continuing saga of Cosmic Boy, the story of one man's perilous journey through space, time, and the depths of his soul. For issue mini-series by Paul Levitz, Keith Giffen, Ernie Colon, and Bob Smith. We have... Ooh, we have the... It's September, so that means Saturday morning cartoons are starting up again. And we have the 1986 lineup ad for NBC. It's a double page spread in the middle of the comic. There's a Smurf holding what looks like a cigar but is labeled gum. And the caption says Hi, a tough, beautiful downtown Burbank in the NBC's video penthouse. The head of programming, Smurf, presides over a teleconference strategy morning meeting with the stars of the Saturday morning lineup. And we have Kissy Fur. Disney's Adventures of the Gummy Bears, The Smurfs, Punky Brewster, Alvin and the Chipmunks, Foofer, Kid Video, plus One to Grow On. I watched... I remember watching The Gummy Bears. The Smurfs were kind of one of those things that you sometimes watched. They were just on, and they seemed to be on for like an hour and a half every morning. I don't know. Punky Brewster, I remember actually... I watched the TV show. I remember seeing a couple episodes of the cartoon. I did watch Alvin and the Chipmunks. Never watched for A friend of mine watched Kid Video, but I could never, ever get into that show. And then there's, of course, One to Grow On. We have a HodgePodge ad. A very, very, very classic one, which includes... You can get phony, realistic, legal size, impressive money. Uh, fake money. A live ant lion, the world's most savage jaw snapping insect, forms quicksand death pits to trap and kill ant victims. It looks like the thing from Star Trek 2 that they put in their people's ears. Why? Allow me to introduce you to SETI Alpha 5's only remaining. Indigenous life form. What do you think? They killed 20 of my people, including my beloved wife. You see, their young enter through the ears and wrap themselves around the cerebral cortex. Uh, This has the effect of rendering the victim extremely susceptible to uh, suggestion. Later, as they These are pets, of course, not white, domesticated. Khan, Captain Kirk was only doing his duty. It's harmless to humans, but you need care and fear and, and to feed it. Uh, Robert Bell of Coral Springs, Florida is uh, selling 100,000 comics. You can finish high school so you can stay home and read those 100,000 comics not to go to high school. There Howard D Re- or from Rosedale, Queens has 250,000 in stock. Complete Marvel and DC groups from 35 to 83. TV Guys, James Bond, Uncle, Doc Savage, Mags, etc. Microbugs, advanced bugging equipment, ultra-small transmitters, telephone bugs, concrete mics. Uh, There's some great stuff in here. Learn while you sleep. Interesting. (laughs) Uh, Draw super characters. The E. Phelps Company. There's the 88 cent super sale sale where you can get A hand buzzer, fake vomit, fake dog poop, that sort of stuff. Baseball cards, send us the name of your favorite team for $12. Prepaid, get $20 worth of cards. Uh, Missed an issue, Dave's Comic, 7019 East 3 Chapter in Richmond. I think that's still around. Uh, Set Door Comics, East 42nd Street in New York, New York. Golden State Comics, 4068 Boundary, San Diego. Yeah, and then, of course, um, Charles Atlas. Been through a little bit more. Summer's here. The time is right for DC Comics. There's Superman flying out of school with everybody waving, pointing, waving, cheering, etc. Um, in the very bottom right-hand corner, there is... Uh, I guess they just ran out of they needed to fill the space. So they have a, a a picture of Batman that's I don't know who drew him. The ears make the ears look very classic Bob Kane, like Detective Comics 27 Bob Kane. Um maybe it's like a Bernie Wrightson or somebody drew this. Uh, there's no art credit, but it says You Only Think You Know Him, The Batman. It's a pretty cool looking ad. The inside cover has a ad is an entry form for the Star Trek Four contest. Uh, the grand prize is an exciting trip for two for two days and one night in New York City to spend, attend a special advanced screening of Star Trek 4 The Voyage Home, plus a personal store tour of DC Comics and by the editor of the Star Trek comic, which is pretty cool. First runner-up, a uh, Star Trek game from West End Games. Second runner-up, New updated Star Trek Compendium from Pocket Books. I had one of those. I had the one that went all the way up to Star Trek 5 Third Runner Up receives the eighty-seven Star Trek Calendar. Fourth runner-up's um special Star Trek for the movie Voyage Home movie poster from Paramount. And uh you just had to cut this thing out, ruin your comic and, and win. And they were um entry forms. We're due by... Well, October 15, 1986. We're not We're not getting that in on time, guys. Sorry. And the back is a ad for Charleston Chew, Sugar Babies, and Sugar Daddy. And really, that is a quick look at a Star Trek comic, DC's probably most famous licensed property. Next time, I'm going to kind of continue in the same vein as I'm going to bring you Science fiction throughout dc's 80 year history so until then thanks for listening and take care thank you for listening to 80 years of dc comics a podcast miniseries presented by pop culture affidavit and two true freaks all comics talked about in this episode are copyright DC Comics, and since this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes and no money is made, no infringement is intended. You can find show notes and supplemental information on this episode at Pop Culture Affidavit, which is located at popcultureaffidavit.com. Interested in leaving feedback? You can email me at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com or go to the Facebook group, which is facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. Thanks for listening, and come back next month for another look at the history of DC Comics.